Saigon Oi! You are now listening to the Creators in Saigon podcast. I'm Dana Drejos, an American expat who's been living in Saigon, Vietnam since July 2018. Like most visitors here, I fell in love with the energy of this city. This energy is generated by the inspiring people here who decided to improve themselves and to be afraid and do it anyway in order to share their gift, passion, or message with our community. These are the people I bring to you in this podcast. So if you're not driving a motorbike right now, get out a pen and paper, get ready to take some notes. And if you are driving, turn the sound up so you can hear over the famous Saigon traffic. Thanks so much for spending your time with us today. Here we go. I'm here with Will, Sean, and Matt from Irregular Film. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So, um, I just want to go around and say where you guys are from and how long you've been here in Saigon. So, Will, where are you from? I am from uh, Texas. Grew up in Houston, went to UT. Mm-hmm. And after I graduated UT, came to Vietnam in 2014. And yeah, I've been here about five years and uh, yeah, having a real good time in Vietnam. I love it here. Yeah. And then, Sean, how about you? Um, as you can tell from my thick Irish accent, um, yeah, I'm from I'm Irish, and I've been here for five and a half years as well. Me and Will pretty much arrived at exactly the same time. It was fate. Exactly. <laughs> and Matt, how about you? I'm from uh, Mallorca, Spain, and I've been in Vietnam since 2010 or 11. So I've been here about eight or nine years now. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So you guys have way more years on me. I think this is just a little over a year for me. So I feel like a little baby <laughs> um, and so then how did you all meet each other yeah well it was a, a segment of me, me and Sean what we we were teaching English together originally that's right we were both placed into the same uh, English center in ILA we got to know each other through work and then became friends that way and then um, after we had made the first film um, Matt then reached out to us because he'd, he'd seen it, right? And well, that's not exactly what happened, it? was it? No. No? Yeah, so Matt... Already telling lies. I'm talking shit, post sorry, lads. Matt put up a post on Facebook. Scribes, Saigon Scribes. Yeah, like a writer's group on ah. Facebook. And he said he was looking for someone who's really into sci-fi and Stanley Kubrick to help him write a script. And like sci-fi and Stanley Kubrick is like my middle name, so I was like, "Yeah, that's it." Okay. I was like, "Whoa, let's let's do something." So then we met in like two weeks. We spent like a couple all-nighters, like worked really hard making this sci-fi script, which will be coming one day. Mm. Not there yet, but Someday. since then, you know, we got along pretty well. We have similar artistic stuff, and yeah, Matt Matt started helping us out with our, our film projects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you and Sean. Oh yeah, so you were teaching together. That's right. Okay. Cool. And are you still teaching now, or? Uh, I'm not currently. Sean, Sean's still Yeah, I'm, I'm still teaching. Yeah. I'm seeing how long before I, I have to go crawling back to earn a bit of extra yeah. income. But yeah, at the moment, no, yeah. I'm just working on videos. Yeah. And this and man, man is pure. Yeah, I've always worked in film. Pure. <laughs> since, since I he was hasn't so been tainted hasn't by been the teaching touched. profession. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And Sean, yeah, you and I worked in the same building randomly. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just finished at Wall Street, so I'm free too. Congrats. Yeah. Oh, really? Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Made it out alive. Yeah, what are you doing now then? Yeah, so now I'm trying to go full on with podcast producing. 
So I'm starting this one kind of as the fun side project and then sort of almost as a portfolio, but also just as a passion as well to kind of show what I can do. Um, and so I want to help other podcasters uh, make their sound better and uh brainstorm content ideas and show notes writing and things like that so it's definitely been a journey <laughs> so I definitely did not know before coming here even barely what a podcast was or let alone that I was gonna get so down this path so did you guys know before coming here that this is kind of where you were gonna go or you had no idea either well, I'll answer first because I think I was the only one who didn't know that. Um, when I came over, I had no background in, in film. Um, but through meeting Will and then meeting Matt, obviously, it's been like a development over the last four and a half years, really, uh, where I've been pretty involved in it. But what about you, Will? Uh, yeah, I wasn't exactly planning on it when I came here, not specifically. I mean, I studied film in university, so I kind of knew my way around the camera and I brought my camera. But it was just kind of collecting dust for a little while until, uh, yeah, me and Sean just, you know, met and, like, we started trading ideas. And then it was like, hey, why don't we why don't we make something, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, even if it's just two of us and a Canon T3i, you know, you can still just go out there and film something. And that's what ended up happening, yeah. Mm, for me, uh, my hometown is a party island, which is great to retire and, you know, but be old and all that in that place. But there's no film production companies of any sort. And at the time in Barcelona, Madrid, there was a big uh, economical crisis, so there was no no jobs or anything to do in film production. So I left Spain, traveled around Vietnam, and making films here is quite cool. Bureaucracy and things like that makes it kind of easy to make films. Yeah, it seems like it's nice to have kind of a partner in crime in that, because for me, I don't really know anyone also trying to do this. So it's nice to have someone at least to talk a little bit, but no one really understands exactly the situation. Yeah, I think we've, um, we've been very lucky in that aspect for having, having like, well, us doing it first and then to add someone like Matt, who's like very, very skilled, you know, and, uh, and we all get on as well. You know, it's not just a professional thing. Like the boys live together now, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, just them. In the, same, yeah, in the same in the same room in the same room it's kind of kind of weird like that <laughs> <laughs> well i guess that's important because yeah then you kind of build that friendship and chemistry and definitely yeah, being creative collaborators is a lot like being in a relationship mm -hmm. really really it's there's a lot of you know give and take and compromise and you know being considerate of other people's feelings or not as you know the case goes but and so on that note, I was going to ask this later on, but I'm just going to ask now then. So in the moments, well, do you have moments where there are disagreements, kind of creative disagreements about something? How do you work through that? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, we've been sitting with Matt at the uh, editing desk for months now on the, the metal documentary, and there's definitely been a few points where we reach an impasse. and. Like, I think we should do it this way. And Matt's like, oh, we got to do it this way. And, but bottom line is that we both want to make the best, all three of us want to make the best film possible. And that's where our disagreement is coming from because we just have slightly different ideas and we just talk it out pretty much. Like, But disagreeing is part of the creation. 
Absolutely. No, and then you, it's like a battle of ideas. You know, you talk it out. You sometimes it's a little heated. It's, it's not. It's not a. It's not an angry disagreement by by any means. You know, it's a creative disagreement, and creative disagreements just too good to a, a craft. You know, I mean, yeah. the strongest idea should hold up to debate exactly. and discussion. You know, and usually that's what happens. Is you know, we'll talk about it. We'll maybe take a break mm. and think about it, and then we'll come back and be like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so we haven't had any lingering big disagreements. Really, everything tends to get Yeah, generally, it's like everyone has their. When you make the first the first couple of drafts, you know, everyone has the parts that they like, and we call them our babies. So eventually, some part of the process, you have to kill those, some of those babies. Yeah. So we did really kill loads the, of yeah, babies. Oh. In the, the creative process for us is really about infanticide. So yeah, <laughs> and the way you kill babies is you kill them and you don't look back. You know, you just kill them and then move on, you know, and then you go by and make sure it was okay. You know, a lot of times it really hurts to remove some parts that we feel attached to, you know. Wow. Yeah, it really happens just to make the film better. Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone's got this part. So it's like, oh, but I really like this moment. Like, we can't lose it. And then, oh, yeah, we have to. Kill the baby. That's going to be the title of this podcast episode. Kill, kill, kill that baby. baby. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was literally just about to say before you guys started talking about that, like, oh, that's such a nice, positive way to look at it. Like, you know, no bad disagreements. It's just making things better. And then you went straight into killing babies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gotta be done. Something gotta do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. How do you think the babies feel about that? <laughs> They can't talk. They're, they're, they're fucking out. That's, that's the kind of stuff you put in extras on DVDs <laughs> and so on. Like deleted scenes, you know. Yeah, bloopers. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Where does the name Irregular Film come from? Yeah, so we were like, what's a cool name, man? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, we, the way we make documentaries is through guerrilla filmmaking, which is like... Uh, you know, not not the standard big budget production stuff. We're going out with one camera, with a microphone. So another word for the guerrilla fighters are irregulars. So, yeah. So that was, that was the reason behind it. But I think it was a bit too clever. I don't think anyone's got it yet. So I think I'm glad I got this chance to explain it now. We take a little bit of pride in the fact that we do things like guerrilla style. Like, we don't... You know, because that, that's just a big influence on how we started. We were just like, hey... We don't know that much, but we got a camera, we got a mic, we're just going to do it and learn as we go. And, you know, we talk about how filmmaking is hard, but it's also not that hard. It's the easiest it's ever been to be a filmmaker in this day and age, you know, so. And why do you say that? Uh, because, I mean, the level of technology has increased massively. Like, you can get amazing images for really cheap. Like, you know, uh, Robert Rodriguez, when he made his first independent film, um, uh, he had to spend like $5,000 on film alone, just purchasing film in order to film. That's for getting the rest of the budget. But now you spend like a couple thousand dollars or less, thousand like dollars even on a camera, you're good to go. Like, and there's so many resources on YouTube, guides and all that kind of stuff. You don't have to go to film school. I did, but you know, nowadays you really don't have to. Not to mention like the the medium that you can release it on with the internet, you know, mm -hmm. like how, yeah, like how accessible we are now, how connected it is. So it's just a matter of uploading it to a site, and if you can promote it right and get people to see it, you know, that that could be it. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get overwhelmed with all of the information out there and the different opinions? Because I know for me, 
yeah, same with the podcast. Like anyone really can start a podcast. All the information is out there, but sometimes I just go down this rabbit hole of getting lost in all of the information and all of the different opinions. Like you should get this mic. No, this one's the best one. No, this one's the best one. And I'll spend hours like, oh my god. And then it's just analysis paralysis. I just don't do anything. Personally, like I think we mostly just tend to stay away from reading too much. Just more doing is, mm -hmm. is better. Like, cause I definitely am susceptible to analysis paralysis. And so I've learned about that. And so I just try not to do it. Like, you know, just get something that's good enough and go. And we do have Matt who's like awesome technical guy, like on any subject, you just talk to this guy. And, you know, we'll have some good advice mm -hmm. for you. So. <laughs> no, I think it's very specific and just like different architects around the world will design a building in different ways. It's the same thing with cameras and it's very depending on what kind of subject you're doing. You know, if you do cars, then you use certain types of cameras. If you do podcasts, then you do other stuff, you know. And the problem is that on the internet, everything gets mixed up together. So that's why it can be confusing. So it's just knowing what you want. Yeah. That's actually one of the reasons we started doing documentaries is because documentaries, you can get away with like mm. lesser equipment. Your shots and lighting don't have to be perfect. Right. Um, you know, and yeah, you can kind of just do it as you go and then figure things out in the editing process, which does make the editing process very long and drawn out sometimes. But yeah, it's, it's not too, it's not, yeah, and just, it, just go do it. With documentaries too, you don't have to rely on other people so much. You know, obviously you do to a certain extent, but it's not like with your shooting a narrative film where, you know, you have to have the crew there and the actors there and it has to be like everything that's correct. You know, with, with the films that we've made, you know, it's often just, just going, going there and then getting something, you know. Um, so, yeah, that makes it easier for us too. Like, do you go into it with a certain vision? Like, I, I want them to say this, I want them to talk about this, and you kind of struggle to, like, pull out of them what you need or want them to say to tell the story? Yeah, if someone thinks that something they're going to say, is, it will affect their life, you know, or, like, affect someone that they know, you know, they're obviously not going to talk about it on camera. It's like they're not, they're not getting anything out of it themselves, so... But uh, I think it's something that we've definitely improved on. It's like making people feel comfortable and relaxed and, and sort of drawing things out of them, you know? It's mm. really about getting, like, not tricking, <laughs> not tricking, but like, you know, building trust and rapport with your interviewees so that they're comfortable saying some kind of delicate stuff because they believe that you will handle that matter tactfully. You and know, you're not just out to sensationalize or get the dirtiest gossip that you can. You and, and if that fails, then you just ply them with alcohol. I was, good, I was literally yeah. about to say, like, can you guys tell the listeners the, the little trick we told them <laughs> to, to loosen them up? <laughs> yeah. Come on, Dana, that was off the record. <laughs> <laughs> And um, to kind of go back to what you just asked there a minute ago, you said about um, about how we approach it from the start. Are we? Yeah. So I think that like the way we've gone into it has been of both films really has been without much idea about the finished product, and I think it has benefited both of the films. But I think that we there's something that maybe we could improve on in the future. Just to spend less time making the films you know like a meandering journey is very fun and you do get like a lot of interesting stuff and you can put it together in the end but i do think kind of a bit of both where you do it would benefit us in the future and i think that's what we're trying to do there's just there's also a difference you can tell there's different types of documentaries some documentaries are like exploring they're exploring and then some documentaries kind of have their agenda from the start and then they're just looking to fill that in and ideally it's somewhere in the middle where you 
you do have like you see the story before you start you see the potential before you start but you go into it honestly where you're just trying to communicate the truth of the, the people or the situation rather than saying i have this concept of this stuff and then i'm gonna fill in you know that narrative so and how about um kind of the struggle sometimes for me as well with perfectionism like trying to make it perfect and at what point do you say okay this is good enough I can't I can't keep going and going like that something we talked about a lot recently with uh, our metal documentary and sometimes you just get so zoomed in and so yep. focused that you start to lose the big picture yeah. you know and that's when when you start like forgetting <laughs> you know what you, what your, your ideas were in the first place that's when every cut you make should be in the context of the full film and every little detail when you edit it should be done in the context of the whole thing you need to have both like the micro view and also mm. the macro big picture view at the same time which can be quite challenging but yeah I mean we definitely lean towards the perfectionist side like if we we like watch the film back and there's parts of the film that are bothering us like this is sloppy or this is not good enough then we're going to fix it you know that's Especially when you have no budget and you have no promotional budget, like you don't have any room to have sloppiness or shittiness in your films. You know, you really got to be on point in order to impress people. And so, yeah. Yeah, and to me, sometimes it's kind of like, well, who am I making this for, and what am I doing this for? Because I like to dance hip hop occasionally. I grew up dancing, and. Nowadays, I'll just find a tutorial on YouTube and just like learn the steps, but it takes me like 30 hours, I counted last time, to learn a two-minute dance routine, and I was filming myself, and I must have done it like, I, I couldn't even count how many times, because I knew that I was going to post it on my Instagram, and I was just thinking about like, oh my gosh, I just made that mistake there, someone's going to see it, and then eventually it was just like, okay, I don't care, I'm just going to put it up. And people who don't dance can't see those mistakes. They see it and they're like, wow, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. And I look at it because I know I watch really, really good dancers. And I'm like, no, that was actually so bad. But to them, it's like amazing. So let's jump back to your first film. Okay, so it's about Weebian Street mm -hmm. in Ho Chi Minh City. So where did the idea for that come about? Or how did you decide we're going to do a film about Bouyvian Street? Uh, well, so me and Sean worked together, like we said, and we worked at the same school, and we would go on this nice balcony we had there above the city and smoke cigarettes, and that's where a lot of our films were born. It's right there having a cigarette while we were on break. And uh, I think you had originally had the idea of doing a documentary about like one of the kids on Bouyvian that shines shoes. That's right, yeah. There was this young boy that, uh, when I was hang just hanging out down there, um, there was a young boy that was a, a shoe shiner and he just had like really good cheeky banter sort of thing. Like, he'd come up to you and he just like, he, he could speak very well and he was uh, really cheeky. But you know, it, it was like he was an impoverished shoe shine boy at the same time. So How young was I would say probably maybe 10, around that 10, maybe possibly 11. You know, he probably didn't get enough nutrients, so he might have been older than that even. But, uh, yeah, it was just interesting to me to see, like, you know, a kid like that, and he was, like, obviously clearly a great character. 
but uh, and then obviously you know it'll also have the appeal of like this is a really poor so uh, anyway that was the, the original idea that I wanted to do but unfortunately he disappeared and never saw him ever again after those first maybe three or four times um, and then you did some work on something else didn't you? Um, I don't remember exactly but long story short me and Sean spent a lot of time on Bolivia <clears throat> quite a bit of time and then what we noticed is there's this shift in your experience of Bolivian as time goes on. Like, for, like I was there my first night I came into Vietnam. Like, I met a friend at the airport, and we got into the taxi. He pulled a beer out of his backpack, and he's like, "All right, so we're gonna go to Bolivian." I was like, "Okay, sure." Then we got there, and like there were lights everywhere. Have you heard of Bolivian before? Um, not really. I knew there was like a backpacker area for tourists, but I didn't know what to expect really. And uh, yeah, so then you know you meet a lot of people there. You get drunk a lot. But then, as you keep going there more and more, you start to be less dazzled by the bright lights, and then you start to see more of the, the Vietnamese people who kind of make the street run. And you start saying, well, this is actually kind of depressing. Like, I'm here drunk out of my head at 2 in the morning, and then there's, like, a, you know, some sketchy-looking woman with, like, a baby trying to sell me, you know, chewing gum or something like that. And uh, it's really, it was really those kind of two sides to it, like the fun, bright, shiny side, and then kind of the underbelly of like really kind of poor, not some, in some cases desperate people, not always, but um, Vietnamese locals like kind of feeding this whole ecosystem. And that's where like the actual idea for the film came. It was never just about like, oh, Vivian, whoa. It was more about like these two things coming together, East and West coming together, foreigners and locals partying and like struggling to survive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we also wanted to make something that wasn't just a clear agenda driven thing you know because it's very it'd be easy to make a film about Bouivien and be like look how terrible the foreigners are I mean clearly if you're going to look at both sides the Vietnamese workers are the more sympathetic characters you know but at the same time like it's you know it's not as simple as that as well you know it's like giving refusing to give the money is does not reflect badly on somebody as a person you know it's like you're you are being harassed a lot there you know there's never an amount that you can give that is enough for that situation and that's not even to mention the the people who are the shady figures in the background who are the ones that are really making these kids go out there and, and work you know so it's a, a real street of gray areas and that's what we tried to show in the in the film mm -hmm. um how long did it take to make that first film Start to finish it was about a year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a year, wow. Yeah, we were working full time, like at the same time, um, and basically our strategy was we would go down once or twice a week to bleep in. Uh, we bring the camera. We would drink and hang out and film. And uh, you know, we had a actually quite a few people who helped us out a lot with that project. Definitely. Uh, Aaron Lawrence is a good friend of ours who. Yeah. Uh, he helped a lot with the interviews, like because at the time, like I, you know, we were on camera and stuff like that. It's quite difficult to you know do that and interview at the same time. And he's he's a charmer also, so he'd help he people. And um, then we had a Vietnamese translator. We had two. We had Lee and we had a Nop, who was just wonderful, wonderful interviewer. Because um, we couldn't speak Vietnamese well enough to get proper interviews, and she was able to like take our questions, really understand them make the people, the Vietnamese people feel comfortable and then ask the right questions and follow up on them, you know, which was absolutely amazing. Couldn't have done the film without them. Uh, but then, yeah, then 
most of that time is actually the editing process, though, because there's no there was no central story necessarily to that film. So we had to kind of build a narrative and a climax out of loosely connected material, which took quite a long time. But yeah, I mean, we were happy with how it turned out. Yeah, it was time well invested. And how did you decide? I'm, I'm picturing you just go on the street and kind of look around and see a person and, okay, let's go talk to that person, or how did that work? Kind of like that. Um, with interviewing the foreigners, it was just going up to them, like uh, maybe it's like a, to a table of people and being like, hey, we're doing a film, um, we'll buy you a beer if you'll speak to us with, for 15 minutes or something like that. And uh, most people, you know, they were, they were, I don't think we got anyone to say that, no, did we? Ah, uh, no, most people were up for it. Yeah. yeah. The Vietnam, some of the Vietnamese sellers were a little bit more standoffish about it and a little bit kind of like, what is, what are these guys' angle, you know, what's, what are they up to? Um, but just through seeing us down there so much, I think, because we were really down there a lot from filming, I think a lot of them became a little bit, you know, more open to us. They could kind of see that we weren't, bad people or whatever and uh yeah so and it wasn't so much as finding people as often we'd have our favorite spots where we just sit there and then we let the, the people yeah, come to us absolutely you know? sadly our the restaurant where we filmed 90 percent of that film is now gone and it's been replaced by a big beer club um mm -hmm. as we vn goes so yeah yeah I, a lot already. I, I i still go down to bouvian maybe once or twice a month and uh there's an old woman that we've that we filmed one of the characters and i think she she seems to be like for the majority of people the favorite character you know and uh yeah every time she sees me she she knows that i'm going to buy her mangoes so her fa like she's just delighted Aww. she's yeah she's even started charging me a little bit more for them now <laughs> yeah really yeah but cuz everyone like cause she did such a good interview that i'm willing to forgive a bit of diva like behavior from <laughs> from the star you know yeah. but I mean, it's the least we can do to just, you know, yeah. right. hook them up for life. It's, you know, just a little um, bit here and there. Helps. Do you think um, people recognize her? Like, not just you guys, but maybe people who have seen the film um, recognize anyone from the film? Well, we know for a fact that they, people recognize her because me and Will were on a, a Vietnamese TV show. I think, actually, how we got in touch through Lam. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And we were on a Vietnamese TV show and we went back to Bui Vien with them and they interviewed her mm. and on that she said that people have recognized her and, and have showed her the film and been like look at you and she was delighted about it. Ah, so cute. And what was the budget for that film? Zero. Yeah, zero. zero. <laughs> yeah, I mean we had, I, we had the camera and the microphone already so yeah that was it. I mean we spent probably a couple hundred dollars on beer between us through the course of making and other things. <laughs> but uh, no, no actual budget no, for either of our films. Yeah, for yeah. this one either, there's been no budget. Mm -hmm. And is it, I've only seen it on Facebook, is that the only place that it is? No, it's on YouTube as well. Actually, the, the Facebook is technically an unauthorized bootleg. Oh. But uh, we're just happy to have people watching. Yeah, yeah. And how many, do you know how many views it's had? On the Facebook it was 
a quarter of a million last time I checked. 270,000 last time yeah. I checked, and on YouTube about 40,000. 40, yeah. 43,000 on YouTube. 43,000. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that was very interesting to see that things, it went much more viral on Facebook than it did on YouTube. Yeah, yeah and, and I think it, on Facebook it really got much more of a Vietnamese audience, which was something that we were wondering, like, will, how will it go over with the Vietnamese audience? You know, obviously we're making it from the foreigner's perspective. And yeah, just seeing like the the way that they they saw it, the way that they interacted with it, um, it was really cool, really really cool. Like you know, I had to get the Google Translate out to see what they were saying, but you know, as far as I know, it was all complimentary. Yeah. Now there's been a good few Vietnamese people because like we didn't know how they would react to it, and some Vietnamese people were like, ah, yeah, but we'd be unsure. I've seen it all before. But uh, a good chunk of them as well were like, wow, I never really thought about what's going on there and the way you showed it to us, even though I'm a local person. And that, that was quite meaningful to hear. It's like, all right, maybe maybe there's something to this filmmaking thing. And maybe, maybe we can tell some stories. Yeah, and then on that note, was there any particularly negative reaction towards it that you got? Some people, what, what did that guy say that was Aaron's friend? Remember he was saying something about this isn't the, the, the real Vietnam and we were like, yeah, that's kind of the point, you know, it's kind of the point that we made yeah, that so this isn't real Vietnam. A few people, like the reception was very good overall. Some people thought we were implying that this is Vietnam, uh, which we actually specifically included a line by one of the foreigners in the film. He was like, I don't think... We Vien Street represents Vietnam. This is like a weird Disneyland for foreigners, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but maybe I don't know. Like it's some people kind of pass that by. I mean, it's it's kind of about how they read into the film. We had some people who think we didn't go dark enough, you know, because mm -hmm. there is definitely more fucked up shit, way more fucked up shit than we touched in that film. But that was not really what this film was. You know, and other people thought we were too dark. They're like, oh, you're making it seem like such a bad place. You guys you know? don't even touch on prostitution, do you? Not really, no. no it's and that's a big topic. It's there, mentioned. Too. We yeah. have you know, a few shots of hookers, but like... And heroin and things. Mafia. Like that. We touched Crazy. on it, but that's it's a whole different film. Mm. So, yeah. So when you have people saying you didn't go too far this way, and other people saying you didn't go far enough this way, then that means you're probably nicely in the middle. Yeah. You know? So you had... The film about WeVN, and now you're working on a film about the metal rock scene here. At first glance, to me, they seem like such totally different like topics. Does Irregular Film have any sort of underlying message or theme that you're going for in each film? Well, I think like the the thing that we want to keep going in is like the very character based. You know, although we're like, we're looking at different, complete, very different things, like you said, it, it's still it, it, the most. Both the films have been based around like hum, humans in the way that, like, you know, trying to show humanity rather than just you know look at these boys playing metal or something like that. You know, it's about who they are. It's about what they're trying to do and why they're driven to do the, do what they're doing, even in the face of of kind of societal disinterest. Um, with Brevian. What, with the faces you forget one it was uh same thing you know it was, it was about the street but really it was about the people that are on the street so absolutely thank you the films like yeah we have a film about Vivienne and then it, the new film is about the underground metal scene here but you have to have the people you have to have really strong and interesting people to carry those stories otherwise it's just not interesting it's just boring otherwise people like 
to connect to people, whether it's a fictional film or a documentary, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes we call the people in our documentary characters, which yeah. is like, it feels a little weird because they're real people, but that is actually, from a filmmaking point of view, that is their function. Um, and just one more thing to go back to your question about like what ties together irregular film stuff, like for the time being in Vietnam, something that we see emerging again and again is our films are kind of about the intersection of local culture and foreigner culture coming together. Like uh, we already talked about that with BBN and then with metal stuff, it's about a very Western genre of music, rock music, metal music, and then it's being picked up by local people and, you know, being brought to life in a way that is uniquely Vietnamese. And so that's something that we're really happy to explore here because it's developing so much in that way, Vietnam. And also that's something that we're just very well suited as foreigners who have lived in Vietnam, you know, quite a few years now. We're in a good position to observe and document that kind of thing as opposed to like really local issues, which maybe we don't have the same, you know, deep understanding that a Vietnamese person would. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you guys, um gracefully let me watch a little bit of the film um, before it's really out and yeah I thought that it was going to be I just assumed that it was going to be about Westerners playing metal rock and then it wasn't at all it was I think all Vietnamese yep. yeah and yeah I was so surprised but you also, hardly see two foreigner faces maybe yeah. in the whole thing mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and then I was also pleasantly surprised that you're right that it wasn't really about metal rock music because I, I'm i not a fan of that kind of music and so I was a little like, ah, I don't know if I'll like this and there are some of those parts where it's like, like <laughs> blaring rock music and I'm like, oh, turn down the volume, but then it's nicely balanced. You guys did a really nice job of balancing like that, the music, but then going to the more deeper emotional parts and actually talking to the person behind it because before watching the film I would just think oh people who play metal rock like they don't have deep emotions or something I don't know like they just seem very angry to me that's like the emotion that I see but then you talk to these humans and get to know their story and it was really beautiful to learn about kind of the history of metal rock in Vietnam and I didn't realize that at some point, rock was banned mm -hmm. in Vietnam and that they found ways to still play it um, and coming to what it is now. So with that in mind, can you, can you give a little description of what it's about? Yeah, uh, so Saigon Metalhood is kind of uh, the history and present also of rock and metal in Vietnam, uh, but as you said, kind of where it starts is you have to go all the way back to during the Vietnam War, when uh, South Vietnam was kind of, you know, hooked up with America at the time, and they had a lot of influence from American culture, which included rock music, and at the time they had uh, rock bands, uh, both Vietnamese, and they'd play for the Americans here, and they'd have little festivals and uh, stuff like that, and then, <clears throat> uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but then after the war ended, Communist one, <laughs> and uh, they, you know, had a problem with Western influence for some reason. So they banned Western culture pretty much. They're like, you can't have long hair, you can't play that decadent Western music. And from like the 70s to late 80s, 
you know, it wasn't really a thing in Vietnam, and that kind of retarded the development of counterculture in Vietnam, whereas the rest of the world was moving forward and developing new things. You know, in Vietnam, they were lucky if they could get some rock cassettes from Thailand, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, so then, then you know, people like Chum Tan Sago, who's uh, the old character in our film, uh, they started, you know, pioneering this kind of thing, and slowly Vietnam's trying to catch up, and it's still not quite there, but uh, there's a lot of people fighting for it. Yeah, yeah but because you can see in other places where there is uh, a market for this, or there is a a scene that's that exists you know you see characters like people like Trung Tan Sago or uh, the other one of the other people we follow um, Chung Loki like they would be stars you know they they are the, the the equivalent of real stars you know here but there's just the audience is so small that you know they then they're also not you know they're, they're normal people they're kind of struggling to get by but it's just a matter of if there was more audience for them, you know, they would be names. They would be people that are known. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of just, it's crazy to see like people with that level of talent that just, just they do just keep going for the sheer love of it as well. Yeah, because I mean, the Vietnamese culture is still like, there's just not, not much of a counterculture yet. It's growing more and more nowadays. Like a lot more young people are starting to get into, you know, just doing their own thing that goes away from mainstream Vietnamese culture, which is more about pop music and stuff like that. Um, but still, metal has not really found a good home yet, and it's, you know, that's a huge struggle for the people in this film. And that's something we wanted to show, because to us, that's inspiring. You know, like, we, we can relate to that ourselves as, you know, filmmakers who are independent, kind of doing our own thing. Um, but we're also not battling against an entire culture in that. But it, it's, it doesn't even dislike metal that much. It's just very indifferent. Right. Yeah. They just don't even. Most people don't even know it exists. Totally. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. just noise to them. Yeah, it's just noise. That's yeah. how it's described. Yeah. I feel like I'm sure maybe you guys have had this experience as English teachers when you're talking about hobbies quite often, and they'll say listening to music, and watching TV. Ask, yeah, and I ask, oh, what kind of music do you like? Um, yeah, they'll say like K-pop or Ballero or whatever. US UK. Yeah, and I'm I always Taylor Swift. Yes, Taylor Swift, Justin Bieber, and I always ask, oh, do you like rock music? And it's always like a hard no, like mm. oh no no. And I'm like why? And they're like oh too noisy. And I, I'm not even thinking about metal rock. I'm just trying to ask what about the Beatles or something like that. You know like classic rock kind of and they just are like what like don't know even what i'm talking about i know for a fact there's a lot of angsty vietnamese teenagers <laughs> who would totally get into metal you know if they had the right environment hip-hop picked up a bit more here i think i find that a lot of the people who a lot of the kids who got into metal here are ones with pretty good english which mm -hmm. helped our case with making this film you know because the majority of it is not in Vietnamese it's mm -hmm. Vietnamese people but they're speaking English mm -hmm. um, so I guess like having that slightly more westernized you know exposure allows them to, to and just to kind of di digress a little bit you see with the mainstream culture you know it's like a strange amount a strange few western songs that got through like the song Lemon Tree mm -hmm. you know it's a cultural phenomenon here it's kind right. of zombies as well right zombie um hotel california oh, yeah, I was just gonna say 
Yeah. I always hear that one playing. I'm yeah. like, that's so random. Right. Scorpions are very popular. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so you kind of have a much smaller um, pool of Western stuff that people are generally exposed to. And then you have like this kind of outliers that might get their hands on a metal track or they might have a friend that knows about metal and then they get into it. But there just isn't the same level of, you know, the ability to be exposed to it like there is in the West until now, really, with the Internet. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, one of the guys in your film was saying he was watching, was it Power Rangers? That's right. Yeah. And That's like right. the opening song was like metal or something. Yeah. He was like, I just really liked mm. that sound. Yeah. yeah. And so he tried to find out more about it and that's how yeah. he got acquainted with metal music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. It is a rock and theme song to be fair. <laughs> it yeah. is. Yeah. 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 Shredding. <laughs> yeah. And how did you find the people your characters from going to shows pretty much i mean uh, chimtown saga as i said we were introduced to but after that um we just we found that there were shows the shows were not promoted heavily at that time it's not so much now even but uh we found the right pages to follow the right people to talk to and we just started going to the shows filming the shows and then you know little by little we'd see the same bands and then we'd start talking to them and then we'd be like hey we're filming there's, there's a few very good bands that we were sort of annoyed that we couldn't get in for reasons of like just breaking up as we were doing it and or, or like just kind of being a little bit reluctant to get on camera but i think that the people we did get in there are you know from talking to people from from like just talking off camera to people and you know like learning more about the scene we got the right people to, to tell that story like the the first the trungtan sago the first guy is you know a very important figure in, in in the rock scene and this same with the the guy who's from Trung Loki um, when metal was really going through like a kind of mini boom a few years ago he was the the real driving force behind that and then yeah then the, the young guys that did it you know they were really trying to push it forward and, and make something happen so it was yeah it wasn't just you know who's going to talk to us it was like we got good solid characters that talk to us there's definitely some trial and error with that like there is at least three interviews that just ended up being not usable at yes all, sadly like really nice people Why? but um so generally it was because either they didn't open up up enough to us or they, they ended up being kind of not related to the core of the film like uh, there's a really cool guy named Feng, uh, Feng Yin Yang he's a really friendly guy um plays in like uh, rock cover bands a lot and as well as a famous he had a more like mainstream Vietnamese rock band but in the end you know he just kind of gave us you know a little by the numbers interview um, which you know fair enough to him uh, he's actually kind of publicity savvy which is kind of a bad thing for us documentary filmmakers yeah. sometimes he, ref he refused our drinks yeah. <laughs> just keep it professional, keep it clean, keep it, you know, light, whereas we kind of prefer to really dig in. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, I noticed in some of the interviews they mentioned things about the government, and I was like, ooh, I wonder if, I wonder if you guys will keep that in, or, you know. Yeah. We will, but... Um, I That's something probably we're, we're not going to talk about too much here. <laughs> yeah. um, but... Uh, you know, I think people spoke honestly about some of the, the struggles and challenges they face from, you know, the... 
They're, they're talking about it from an artist point of view, really. Not not as any sort of and a pure and a, and a historical History. point of view. That is, yeah, that historical is, point yeah. of view as well. Yeah, yeah sure. That's what happens, yeah, you know. It didn't the, seem like negative. No. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the life of the artist in this country. No matter you play metal, paint, or do sculptures, it's mm -hmm. pretty similar struggles for everybody, you know. It's not so, the easiest yeah, no, like the film's about metal, but you could just make it about jazz, and it would still probably work. Still, right? Yeah, yeah. I would say there is not, there's not much criticism there, really. Just more matter of fact talking about mm -hmm. what happens. Yeah, mm. yeah. This is it. What is the goal of this film like what would you want people who watch it to walk away with uh, they, I would like them to have like to feel like they were there and they witnessed a brief moment and like you know this, these stories that never end these like cultures these groups of people that try to create something and sometimes they have their high points and sometimes they have their low points I would want to just put someone there and have them hopefully immersed when they're watching and you know, to understand what these people are going through, and then at the end, you know, come out of it like, well, like uh, that's something I had no idea existed. And I had no idea about any of that. Now I'm coming out, like I know a little more about the world. I think it's a film that metalheads will really love because I remember being 15 and I would save my money to go buy a DVD from Korn, mm -hmm. you know, a behind the scenes DVD that they had when they were recording their first album. And it's all like piece of shit footage out of handy cams, you know what I mean? They just slapped it together into VHS, you know what I mean, right? But I went and spent my money with it and I watched it five times over and I really loved it as a metalhead. And I think that this documentary will do exactly the same. It gives a cool lens of on the Vietnamese metal scene to other people from other countries. So definitely, metalheads all around the world will definitely enjoy this. Yeah, I, that's what I'm, I'm hoping too. Like being a young metalhead too, metal, metal fans I think are very, you know, they're interested in in the media that is mm -hmm. is relevant to them, like more so than most other genres of music, yeah. I would say. And uh, but I'm also hoping that. You know, metal fans, I think, are going to be the people that are most uh, driven to go out and watch this initially. But I think we've made a film that will hopefully transcend just music documentary. You know, mm. it's not just that, you know, people will learn something. And, and like Will said, it's a slice of time yeah. where they can see and, and view. But, you know, it's hopefully like a, a story about people, too. Like it, about if, even if you don't like metal, you'll enjoy this for sure. Yeah. yeah. No. Um. Yeah, because like I said, I'm not a metalhead, but I think that was actually a slight advantage for the film because I was looking at it from the outside a little bit, you know, like, and then it was actually very helpful as well, though, to have a metalhead, you know, editing mm. the film because Matt, you know, he really thoroughly understands the genre and, you know, that, that made things a lot easier. Mm. Yeah, well, congratulations because that's exactly how I felt after I watched it. Me too. I'm not a metalhead by any means, definitely never really listened to that genre, the closest. I would get is like Warped Tour, you know, <laughs> when I'm like 13 years old and Lincoln go Park. Lincoln Park and like yeah. that chemical romance. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> and yeah, I just went into it very open minded and okay, I'm like, these are people, I'm mm. just learning about people. And yeah, that's exactly how I felt when I came out of watching it. Okay, I know a lot more now about this thing that I didn't know anything about. So it's cool. Right. If someone were to say to you, I have a great idea for a film, but I have no experience, no expertise, no equipment, I don't know how to tell a good story, they're just starting from like ground zero, what kind of advice would you give them? Um, one thing I would say is like, 
don't be too ambitious at first, like with the scope of what you're doing. Like, because realistically, at the start, you're not going to have the best equipment, you're not going to have the best skills, and all that kind of stuff. So don't take on something huge that is going to defeat you, you know, and discourage you. Like, um, I, you see this often with like film students or stuff like that. They'll make uh, like a wildly ambitious, like experimental visual film with like you know a really crappy camera and without, you know, the eye and the location and the actors to really sell that. And so it's like, well, don't do that. Like do something like a documentary is always a great idea to start with because, mm -hmm. you know, it's just the learning curve is very suitable to new filmmakers. But yeah, I'd really say don't get crazy ambitious. Just go do simple stuff more and more. And as you go, get more and more complex. I don't know, Matt, maybe you have some advice for it. Treat your phone like if it was a serious camera. Like get a mount it on a rig or something like that, and forget about spending any money on cameras. Not at this point. Mm -hmm. Like this is something you will need much later on because phones shoot really well and automatic wise. If if you have like zero experience, you know what I mean. Yeah. Just make sure it's like well handled and all that stuff. Just you know holding it with your hand, stuff like that, and focus on the story. Absolutely, exactly what he said. Pretty much that. Do, do not be too ambitious and focus on the story, and have a very specific direction that you're sniping and shooting for. You know, and make it make it uh, make short term goals that will give you more confidence to make bigger things later on. That will give you more confidence to make even bigger things, and so on and so on. And just always try to learn from your mistakes. Like when I first started to use the use the camera, you know, like we would shoot it, then we'd go back look at the footage, and just looking at like analyzing, you know, being honest with yourself. Don't think like, oh, it wasn't that bad, but just be like, what did I do wrong? How can I not do this next time? You know, what what should I have done in this situation? And yeah, because there's so many aspects to filmmaking. There's you know exposure. There's composition. There's cameras. There's equipment. There's you know sound. There's all this stuff. Um, you just got to take one thing at a time because you know you'll get overwhelmed if you try and nail everything your first time around. Definitely, definitely try to find good collaborators oh, yeah. to work together with because filmmaking. There's so many directors who like to be like, oh, I'm the, I'm the director mm. here. I have the vision and everyone's working for me and stuff like that. Yeah. That's bullshit. Yeah. Like, you got to leave that ego behind mm. and just find some people that you can have an honest and open collaborative yeah. relationship. And I feel really lucky to be working with guys like this where mm. not only are they smart and talented and creative, but also, you know, they get it. They get how to work together and that's yeah. made us able to achieve together things that we never could have done alone and mm. we never could have done if one of us was trying to call all the shots and stuff like yeah. that you know yeah, yeah so support each find, other find some people like that. Yeah. sweet <laughs> yeah. Man, I have a super good tip always focus on story and get good with tools not because tools are important but because you want to be so good with the tools that you don't even have to think about them mm -hmm. and they don't become an impediment to tell your story like tools the tools cameras microphones and all that stuff should be like walking you don't think about i will put my right foot last and etc you, you don't think that it's just internalized subconscious right so you should be like that like tools you should be really good with your tools so that you don't waste time with them and you can focus on story what matters and do you guys have any specific tips for storytelling? The first 10 seconds really matter. First impressions are extremely important. Yes. And the beginning and the end are extremely important. You mm. need to have someone right off the bat. It's like meeting somebody for the first time, you know? Yeah. If, if you want someone to keep watching your film, the first 30 seconds are the most important part. Mm. If they're not interested or engaged or hooked or have, you know, questions raised in their mind, the first yeah. 30 seconds, they're gone. Mm. Yeah. You know? And then obviously the ending 
it's always a goal to have someone walking out of the very ending, like with something they just saw, like turning over in their head, whether that's mm. something kind of depressing or whether it's something that's like really hyped and they come out excited, like you mm. need to give them something to take out at the very end. I mean, the whole sort of timeline of the film should be kind of looked at in terms of like intensity, you know, where mm. like, you know, there's needs to be parts what do get ramped up and like, like you know this you can't you know, then to follow it with like a, a time of like reflection where people can sort of chill on it a little bit um you can't just like and then you see with some things that are done bad it's going to be like ah and then it's going to drop off just at the wrong time and it just doesn't feel right you know you just need to be kind of you need to be sort of recognizing how the film is making people feel in the in the intensity of it in the right places yeah absolutely yeah it's so important about the emotions and I was just listening to a podcast they were just kind of talking about this um, more in terms of childhood traumas and like bad memories and stuff but if you think back to the most happiest memories, if you think back to memories in general, the ones that stick out to your mind, you probably have five like really strong really happy memories and probably you know a number of really bad memories and it's the emotion that was attached to it like we don't remember what i was doing on august 15th you know 2007 in whatever grade you think about oh i was like really sad or really angry this one time and that memory is really strong to me so it kind of seems like similar in a film you remember the films that really deeply made you feel something absolutely Absolutely, like faces you forget. Like I, I think when people, if people remember that film, it's not like, oh the, I mean like the the part where they were debating whether we should give kids money on the street or not was really stimulating. It's more like, oh when the the guy with the burned face was playing guitar was you know really incredible, or the part where the woman was getting roughed up on like across the street on camera, like that. Those are the things that trigger the emotional reactions, and that's what people. Well, remember and that's why people watch films you know it's to get that feeling right. mm-hmm. um why do you think it is filmmaking for you personally that um you have chosen as your way to creatively express yourself because it seems like you guys are really passionate about sharing stories sharing human connections and there's i think there's many different ways to do that and to express yourself creatively so how do you think it became film that was your medium through me it was meeting will and then matt afterwards i always saw myself as as i would be a writer mm-hmm. i i you know that, that was always the thing that i thought that i would i would do um always enjoyed films always enjoyed the medium of documentaries especially but through meeting the boys and, and seeing and they made it possible for me really like anyway go ahead filmmakers what do you, what do you have to say about it for me it's simple it's just films affected me watching films affected me in a way books actually did more but writing books is hard yeah. <laughs> filmmaking is much easier to me than writing a book um, but yeah I was just like when I was young man I just watched like Stanley Kubrick movies and stuff like that and they just blew me away I'm like, mm-hmm. how can they make me feel these things you know the way they combine this audio-visual experience with these they make you think. concepts. They make you think, you know, they give you something to chew on and they change the world and, like, they can make a lot of money, too. Not yet. Not yet for us, but, you know, 
Like it's it's something that's possible. It can inspire and, people yeah, to do things. That's what I, my my personal dream is to make films that give people that same feeling. I had mm. a feeling of like, wow, this is making me think. I didn't know you could do this. I didn't know this was possible. Yeah. And then you know. Yeah. For for me personally, I, I have a very strong focus on like fantasy and science fiction and all that. And I think, especially specifically, science fiction is the kind of genre that could inspire people to explore space exploration and things like that. And if I can do anything that will inspire people to study engineering or things like that, then I'll go ahead to it. Because lo loads of movies that people loved about something about them, it made them follow their career based on that movie that they watched when they were a kid or something like that. You know what I mean? Maybe a kid watched the movie about a plane he really liked and he became a plane engineer or something like that. It can happen. It's very common. You know, and I think it, they can inspire people a lot, just like they inspired me to make movies themselves, you know? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's kind of my drive behind this podcast yeah. as well. Like I've listened to so many podcasts that have helped me personally grow, and I'm just like, wow, I want to have that same impact. And yeah. I think um, from teaching as well, a lot of times I ask my students, so what are your hobbies or what do you like to do creatively? And it's not so common in Vietnamese culture. Um, and even in any culture, really, it always kind of seems like art and creativity is kind of put on the back burner to, to like, you need to make money, you need to be successful in your career. And um, it, it just kind of struck me as kind of sad. And I just, that's why I want to bring on people like you to talk about these passions and creative expression and hope that it inspires someone else to pick up a camera when yeah. they have no money and just try something. Absolutely. Yeah, like I was saying, do not waste your time with cameras or do not think that you need this gimbal or that lens to create anything. Don't just treat it. No, 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 that's no. That's a huge trap. Like, if that's your problem, just use your phone like if it was a bigger camera, put it on tripods and things like that, and you'll be just fine, you know, and focus on story. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, me too. The podcast, it's, I mean, it's way less of a to-do than filmmaking, for yeah, sure, yeah. but still, like, my first couple like I still just have my phone sitting here recording just in case because I have no idea like I'm looking at this equipment I'm like I don't know what that is how to use it it's scary <laughs> I'm not sure what this contraption is yeah, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, it's like yeah. a piece of modern art yeah, big DIY make it work exactly you know? exactly all right so I have two questions left maybe three um, what do you see in the future for irregular film? Any any projects coming up that you kind of world domination? <laughs> I think nothing less will suffice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we have we have a few projects that are sort of being planned at the moment for after this, but really most of the focus is gone on for, on, on finishing this and then the subsequent promotion of it after we release it so that's getting most of the brain power we've been kind of tipping away on a few on a few ideas but obviously like we need to figure out the logistics of those ideas as well so yeah, it'd be a bit premature to go go into specifics but i mean the thing that we're one of the things we're really excited about is that uh this film cycle melhead is our first feature film it's a full-length feature film which is a big deal for filmmakers, um, and we kind of we want to keep going in that direction. It takes a lot more work, it's a lot more time, it's a lot more money, but 
it's just it's different this is the true medium of film you know so now we're 20 minutes mm-hmm. we're now we're 20 minutes you can do so much with that amount of time that mm. you cannot do in a short film which makes it actually in a way it's easier than a short film because short films it's really challenging you mm. have to be super concise and uh, you know economic with your storytelling whereas mm. feature you have a little more room to play but um yeah, no, we, we have uh, yeah, a few few things ticking. But, you know, again, like Sean said, it's, we're all really thinking about finishing this film, how to promote it, because it turns out making a good film is not enough. That's only, like, half the battle. Then you have to get people to see it. That's the easy part. Yeah, to, make, easy to, part to make a film is the fun, easy part. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm pressing buttons and, like, behind the computer part. Just watching, yeah. watching something gradually become better and better. You know, yeah, it's, uh, that's yeah, great. Yeah. It's satisfying. That's the easy part, but distribution <laughs> right it's it's the first it's the first time you know after the going through the editing process where it's almost entirely you know a lot of it is out of your hands you know you can work and you can push and obviously you can make your own luck to a certain extent but at the same time you know it is requiring that correct person or people to see it and really put it forward and allow markets to open up for you mm-hmm one thing that we are planning on doing though is branching out not only documentaries but also narrative films uh, that's a big thing for us we've been working on some scripts practicing some short films but yeah like Matt, Matt said he's a big sci-fi fantasy guy we are as well we have some pretty big ideas there but uh, yeah you all have to wait and find out <laughs> we'll, let you, we'll let you know on the next time we're on yeah yeah, yeah. And so on that note, how can people follow you? How can they stay up to date? How can they find this film once it's finally out? Yes, so we are a regular film. You can find us uh, a regular film on Facebook, a regular film on YouTube. And uh, you'll find our film Faces You Forget there. Faces You Forget is the Bouyvian documentary. That's free on YouTube. It's about 27 minutes long. Um, the Saigon Metalhood is not available yet. But we have a website, SaigonMetalHood.com, where you can see the trailer, get information. Um, we're actually also producing and releasing a compilation album of all the artists that were featured in nice. this documentary. Yeah. So, uh, again, we're still assembling that, but that will be available on SaigonMetalHood.com. All your favorite hits from the Vietnamese metal yeah. bands. And their place. the money will be sent to the bands. Yes, and we are working together with the bands to use this as a route to allow people to provide support to these people uh, who are struggling here to, you know, get enough money to buy their guitars and, you know, put on shows. Yeah. yeah. Saigon Metalhood at SaigonMetalhood.com. <laughs> awesome. And I will link all of that in the show notes as well so people can find it easily. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Click um, here to subscribe. Here, here. Yeah. Everybody yeah. point out. You just point there, here. Right, right, right. <laughs> Or up here. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. I wish the best of luck to you. I'm, I'm really excited for this to come out and for people to see what you've done. And it's been really fun to talk all of this out with you. And I think people will get a lot of value from all of your advice. Um, yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, one last question that I'm trying to incorporate in all of the podcast is what does being a creator mean to you um i think that it is important i don't know i think it's very rewarding to make things whether it's like a carpenter making a table you know to just to spend your time 
making something that you know you can then go afterwards and look at and mm. be like look what i made i think it's if you'll allow me to be a bit pretentious i think it's one of the most satisfying parts of the human experience just you know being able to like mm. to bring something into reality from your mm. own mind something that doesn't get enough focus in this day and age because there's so much emphasis on consumption always consumption is okay it, you must consume you know whether it's food or media but you know, it's a two-way street. It really, it really ought to be. You know, everyone's got their own way of doing it, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah, and a lot of people, they come to you and they're like, I don't know what to do in my life. I don't know what's the purpose in my life. I'm just going to go find a job, work 9 to 5 from Monday to Friday, and then they go on the weekend, just get drunk every single weekend, and they don't find purpose to life, and they hate their own life or something like that. This is something that I encountered. Being a creator stops you from entering that mindset from the beginning, you know? Yeah. Everyone's got something inside themselves to share and yeah. to express. And, yeah. You know, the key is just not, like, I always used to worry about being cliche or like, oh, I have to do something completely original or different mm. from everyone else, like irregular films. Like, like something that means something to you. It doesn't matter. Like, hey, okay, maybe you don't have the craziest story or the most unique perspective on something, but it doesn't matter. Make it for yourself. You know, make it make something that you feel what's inside of you, put it out and share it with others. Make movies you want to watch. Mm. Absolutely, don't worry yeah, that's the too best much about ever. other people. Yeah, because yeah, that's that's not a healthy yeah. way to go. You can I can promise you any movie that you think it's a great movie. That's the movie that the director wanted to watch in the first place, and he did it for himself because he wanted to watch that movie himself. And nobody did it, so he's gonna make it himself. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> if nobody's gonna do it, I'm gonna go do it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty much that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. I'll leave it on that note. That's all really great. So thank you guys so much and can't wait for the film to come out. Metal, Metal Hood. Saigon Metal Hood. Saigon, Saigon Metal, Metal Hood. Hood. Thanks, Dana. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. And see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Creators in Saigon podcast. The music for the podcast was created by Lewis Wright and the cover art was created by Priyanka Mehta, both creators in Saigon. Everything else is done by yours truly. I hope this discussion has inspired you to create and to learn more about who you are. If you or someone you know would be a good guest for the podcast, send me a direct message over on Instagram at creatorsinsaigon or email me at creatorsinsaigon at gmail.com. If you are a business owner with a product, service, workshop, event, anything you think this community would benefit from knowing about, I'd love to collaborate with you, so send me an email and let's see what we can make happen. I want to make this show better and better for you guys, so please, if you have any feedback or ideas for me, I'd love to hear them. I have some exciting ideas of my own and some incredible guests lined up for the future, so keep coming back for more. I also want as many people in Saigon to hear these messages as possible, so I need your help to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, share in your social media, and share it with your friends. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon.